0: well good morning everyone it's good to be with you again today and uh, to share some thoughts from god's word if you have your bible with you or your text before you and would like to open it at john chapter 19 we're going to continue uh, our series uh, entitled countdown to the cross and uh, as uh, our lenten period is with us we're thinking our thoughts are turning towards easter and uh, the events of the Passion of Jesus. We've been going through John's Gospel over these last uh, uh, wee while. And, and so we're looking at John's Passion narrative. We have looked at the, uh, the um, Passover feast. We have looked at the events in the Garden of Gethsemane. And last time we looked at Jesus' rejection by the Jewish authorities. And today we turn to John chapter 19. And uh, the civic trial of Jesus the trial before the Roman authorities. Now actually, the story begins in chapter 18, verse 28, when Jesus is introduced to Pilate. But uh, we're going to pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 1. And this is what the text has to say. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, And put it on his head and arrayed him in a a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, and the purple robe Pilate said to them behold the man when the chief priests and the elders when the chief priests and the officers saw them him they cried out crucify him crucify him Pilate said to them take him yourselves and crucify him for i find no guilt in him the jews answered him we have a law Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the civic trial of Jesus, the trial of Jesus before the Roman authorities. There were actually three trials if we were to take the synoptic Gospels together. First of all, he met with Pilate. Then Pilate sent him to Herod Agrippa. Now, it's Luke's Gospel that tells us that. And then after Herod Agrippa, he returned to Pilate a second time for the third trial, the third of the civic trials that Jesus experienced. The main theme of this passage of scripture, uh, the climax of the passage, is indeed the last verse that we read, which is verse 16. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. This passage is dominated by the condemnation of Jesus. Last time, the uh, passage was dominated by the rejection of Jesus. And now we're looking at his condemnation his condemnation. And so the the climax of the passage is verse 16. But that's actually not the message of the passage. That's where the passage is going. But the message of the passage is to be found in in verse 14, where John slips in this little sentence that says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. Now that's a deliberate point on John's part Because in John's mind, the message of Jesus' crucifixion is to do with Passover. That's the meaning that John gives to Jesus' death upon the cross. It's a Passover thing. And so it's interesting to note that it's only in John's gospel that we read the phrase, the the Lamb of God, where John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. He refers to him twice like that in chapter 1. And throughout John's gospel, John is uh, deliberately linking the death of Jesus with the Passover. And that's the message that lies behind it. What John wants us to do is, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the Passover lamb. That the Passover of the Old Testament recorded for us in Exodus chapter 12 is a picture, an illustration, a forerunner. Of what's going to happen within the next few hours of Jesus' life when he eventually dies upon a cross. That's the dominant theme and that's the clear message from this passage. But what actually is going on here is, uh, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53 where the prophet says that he was crushed for our iniquity. He was bruised, but particularly that he was crushed. Because in the civic trial of Jesus before Pilate, Jesus' very being is being squeezed beyond imagination. And the devil, as it were, working through the authorities that were in power at the time, he is trying to destroy Jesus in every way he can. And Jesus is under extreme pressure. The fulfillment of of Isaiah's prophecy that he is being crushed. The word there means to take a, a bunch of grapes, as it were, or some fruit, and to squeeze it so hard that the juice runs out. Crushed, made into a pulp, and Jesus is under sustained, systematic attack on every count in these verses. Let me just point out a few of them. We don't have time to look at them all, But let me just point out a few of them. First of all, I want you to notice in chapter 19 how Jesus' body was destroyed. Look at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Probably this is the scourging That is referred to in the Synoptic Gospels. There were three types of beating that the Romans dealt out. A a light beating, a medium beating, and a severe beating. And the severe beating was the scourging. Probably the one that Jesus is experiencing on this occasion. I'm sure you know the details of scourging. A scourge was a short whip. It had three, usually three straps to it. Each strap was impregnated with something sharp. Sometimes a piece of bone, sometimes a piece of filed lead. My understanding is that in Latin it was known as ticilli. And that this ball bearing, this lead ball, would be sharpened with two spikes on it. A little bit like a cat's head with two ears sticking up. And that ball bearings like this, sharpened with points, would be um, uh, threaded onto the uh, scourging whip. The scourging whip was applied with a flicking motion so that when it was flicked upon the body that the ball bearing with the spikes would hit the body flat but because it was flicked it would dig in so that the spikes would penetrate the flesh so that when the whip was then removed it would pull a piece of flesh, a lump of flesh out with it. Remember that there were three of these. The flogging was usually conducted by two floggers, two Roman soldiers. And one of the Roman soldiers would have been left-handed so that the affliction or the, the punishment could be delivered from both sides. The prisoner would be stripped. His hands would be tied. And he would have been hung up on a pole. The target was anywhere between the back of the neck and the back of your calves. Anywhere down the reverse side of the body. And so these two soldiers, with the prisoner hung up in the middle, would apply the scourge in a flicking motion. His body was destroyed. I'm sure many of you will know that there were so many prisoners that didn't survive this uh, scourging. It was such a severe beating. The loss of blood was so severe that prisoners didn't survive. His body was destroyed. But I want you also to notice that his worth was desecrated as well at this time. Look at verses 2 to 3. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. They're mocking and humiliating Jesus. And it may well be that the pain that Jesus experienced through humiliation was actually more intense than the pain that was physical being applied to his body. He is being humiliated. He is being mocked to the nth degree. He's being crushed, do you see? This civic trial is designed to be a systematic attack and destruction of every part of Jesus' being. The thorns that were placed upon his head... It wasn't like the artists as they usually portray it. The artists portray a very neat little crown of thorns rather like the laurel wreath that would be given to an Olympic or an athletic champion that was neatly placed around rather like a, a headband. It wasn't like that. With a sword they would have chopped the uh, branch of a thorny bush and they would have molded it some way or other to protecting their hands from being uh, uh, pierced. They would have molded it into a kind of cap and then it would have been rammed onto the head of Jesus. The only way that it stayed in place was because the spikes penetrated his scalp and it was anchored there because the spikes uh, were underneath his skin holding it in place. But of course the mocking made Jesus uh, was aimed at making Jesus feel worthless and wretched. They are trying to desecrate his worth. Notice how they his person is debased. His person is debased in verses four to six. Pilate orchestrates a drama here. You see, the the Sanhedrin wouldn't have gone into into Pilate's palace because it was coming up to Passover and they didn't want to be ritually unclean. So Pilate spends his day running in and out, coming in to investigate and cross-examine Jesus and then go out to the scribes and the leaders, the Sanhedrin, to explain to them the decisions. that he. And he goes out to the Sanhedrin and he says to them, I can find no fault in him. But then he makes a declaration. Behold the man. I can just picture Pilate standing on the terraces with the Sanhedrin before him. And he turns with his hand and he beckons Jesus to be brought forward. Behold the man. And Jesus is led out, still wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. You see, Pilate is being sarcastic. There is this, this action is heavy with irony. He's mocking Jesus. Because the last time they saw Jesus, he was in full fettle, as we would say. Now he's a shadow of himself. Behold the man. He's brought out bruised and bleeding. Hardly maybe able to walk. Carried by two or three soldiers who are helping him out. And there's sarcasm in what Pilate is saying. It's ironic. He's not hardly a man at all. Because of the punishment that has been meted out to him. You see... A systematic, uh, sustained attack aimed at crushing the very being of Christ. His person is abased. Notice also too how his divinity is disparaged. In verses 7 to 11, when Pilate declares that that he finds no fault with him, they say to him, look, there's a law that we have. That was a reference to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, where they say, this man made himself to be the son of God. Well, you see, as a Roman ruler, Pilate could not have cared less about him being the son of God under normal circumstances. That's a religious matter. It's a matter to do with the religious belief and the religious re- uh, Jewish religion. He's in no, no interest of him at all. But the Jewish leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, are disparaging Jesus' divinity. Isn't it interesting, this little phrase that we read in, in, in verses 7 to 11, where it says, Pilate was even more afraid. Jesus is getting to Pilate. Jesus is having an impact on Pilate. We didn't have time to look at it this morning, but the discussion that they have in chapter 28 about truth, Pilate muses, what is truth? And here we have him even more afraid, Matthew's gospel tells us that he got a note from his wife saying, have nothing to do with this Nazarene because I dreamt about him last night and I suffered in accordance with the dream. It was a dreadful, it was a nightmare. Have nothing to do with it. Pilate is is being impacted by the person of Jesus as the authorities, the Sanhedrin, disparage Jesus' divinity. You see, in this point, they have a, have a conversation, Pilate and Jesus, about uh, authority. Pilate comes back in again with Jesus uh, into his palace uh, rooms and he says to him, Where do you come from? Having heard that he was the Son of God, where do you come from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. Pilate plays the, Do you know who I am card? You're not answering me? What a cheek! My goodness. Do you not know that I have authority to release you or I have authority to have you crucified? And even though Jesus is so weak, he is able to say to Pilate, Pilate, you and I both know you have no authority at all but the authority that you have been given by those above you. Whether Jesus was referring to Tiberius, the emperor, or whether he was referring to God, remains ambiguous. And Pilate knows the truth of what Jesus has to say. Jesus is, his divinity is being disparaged. And then finally, Jesus' innocence is being discarded His innocence is being discarded. I want you to notice a key phrase which occurs in verse 12. Uh, Well, two key phrases. The first key phrase that appears, it says that from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. After this discussion about authority, Pilate's convinced Jesus is innocent. He has absolutely no doubt in his mind that Jesus has done nothing to deserve death. And he's going full out to have Jesus released. He's determined to have Jesus released. But notice the key phrase that occurs in verse 12. If you release this man, the Sanhedrin say to him. This is the phrase. You are not Caesar's friend. Now that's a code. And it's a code whereby Pilate is now being blackmailed. And the casual reader may not understand this, but history tells us why it's a code and how Pilate was being blackmailed. You see, on three occasions prior to this event, on three occasions, Pilate had annoyed the Jewish Sanhedrin and come into conflict with them And on each of those three occasions, the Sanhedrin had bypassed Pilate and gone straight to Tiberius, the emperor. They had communicated with the emperor and they had told the emperor on these three occasions the mistakes that Pilate had made. And on each one of those three occasions, the emperor Tiberius sided with the Sanhedrin. And he disciplined Pilate, on three occasions. And Tiberius has made it clear to Pilate that three strikes and you're out. One more mistake, Pilate, and you're history. And Pilate knows that he has no more chances left. And if he is uh, reported to Caesar, then he knows that his time as procurator of Judea is over. And so he, he knows that there's a code In verse 12, you are not Caesar's friend. Was the Sanhedrin's way of saying to Pilate, Pilate, you don't have a choice here. You've got to do what we say, because if you don't do what we say, we are going to the emperor again. For the fourth time, and this time we both know what the outcome will be. For Pilate, his innocence, Jesus' innocence was discarded. Do you see, at every turn, the systematic, sustained attack upon the person, the being, the role, the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's being crushed at every turn his values despised, his purpose derided, his body destroyed, his worth desecrated, his person debased, his divinity disparaged, his innocence discarded. At every turn, he is the Lamb of God without blemish. Without blemish. Because at no point in this story does Jesus cave in. At no point in this story does Jesus become broken. At no point in this story does Jesus fail. He is the Lamb of God without blemish. And he endures it all. Warren Wearsby in his helpful little commentary makes this point. That back in Exodus chapter 12. When a lamb was selected for uh, sacrificing. It had to be without blemish. So the, the lamb was examined thoroughly to make sure that it was worthy of, to be sacrificed. And he makes the point that during these trials of Jesus, he is being tested thoroughly. He's been examined thoroughly. He's being attacked thoroughly to discover his worthiness to make the sacrifice within the next few hours of his life, according to John's gospel. Just as Pilate comes to the end of his his trial in verse 16, delivers him over to be crucified. And his condemnation, the condemnation of Jesus, is complete. But Jesus is the Lamb of God without blemish. Later on in his epistles, John was to write in 1 John chapter 3 verse 5 that Jesus had no sin. Peter confirms this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Peter writes, Jesus committed no sin. He had no sin, and he committed no sin. And we have on this account uh, three occasions when Pilate declared that he could find Jesus guilty of nothing. Three three declarations of Jesus' innocence. But Paul puts it most succinctly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Where Paul writes this. For our sake. For our sake. God made Jesus to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that's the why question. We've looked at the who and the where and the when and the how. But as far as God is concerned, this is the why question that's answered on this occasion. Why did Jesus submit himself to such a crushing, such a sustained, prolonged attack on his being? It was for you and for me. It was for our sake. How come? So that we would might become the righteousness of God. Now as I bring this message to a close, let me just ask a simple question. What has the righteousness of God got to do with you and me? You see, we could often miss it, couldn't we? The the phrase, the righteousness of God, seems such a theological phrase. That in our everyday lives, in our everyday stresses and strains, as we go through life as parents, as as grandparents, as uncles, as children, as siblings, as people that are employed or unemployed, we wonder just what the righteousness of God has to do with the likes of you and I. Well, let me explain it to you. The righteousness of God is the key to life. The righteousness of God is what life is about. The righteousness of God is the healing of our bones. The righteousness of God is the the peace of mind that we need. It's the hope that we need in the place of darkness. It's the strength that we need in the place of weakness. It's the encouragement that we need when the going's tough. It's the comfort that we need when we feel as if we've made a mistake or we fail. It's the cleansing that we need. Whenever we feel as if we've messed up and done the wrong thing. The righteousness of God is so much more than just a theological phrase. It's a human experience. It's the key to life. It's what makes us human. It's what makes us function in the best possible way that we can as human beings. It's what we need. It's what Billy Graham referred to as the God-shaped gap that's in our lives. You see, the righteousness of God begins with reconciliation. The righteousness of God is when we become friends with God. That's what's missing in so many people's lives. That's what people search for in sex and in drugs because they don't know where else to turn. Because for that moment of time, in sex or in drugs for that moment of time, they have a release from the weight and the darkness that's in their heart. And instead, what God is saying here, what Jesus is doing for us, that for our sake, he went to that darkness in order that we didn't have to. And it's through being reconciled to God that we come into our own, that we experience life as he intended us to have it. You see, to be reconciled with God means to have God smile upon us, not frown upon us, but it's to have God smile upon us. When we know that we are at one with him. And when God smiles upon us, guess what? The world is good. Life is good. When God smiles upon us, we have peace. When God smiles upon us, we know his favor. When God smiles upon us, we know that things are working out. And we can cope. But it's not just about cleansing and reconciliation. That's to do with our status with God. But it's also do with our restoration. I feel very strongly that someone listening to me today needs to bring closure to something in their life, in their past. That's what becoming the righteousness of God also means. It means bringing closure to the past. It means letting the past drift into the past. The word that I would use for this is the word restoration. God restores what has been lost. God makes up for what has gone. God puts right that which was wrong. And there is not only reconciliation, but there's also restoration through what Jesus did in being crushed for our sake. And that brings closure to the past. Someone needs to hear this today. There's something that you're carrying that you need to put down. Something that you're carrying that you need to put down. Do you know where you put it? You go to the cross. You give it to Christ. Figuratively speaking, you kneel at the foot of the cross and you hand it over to Christ. Say those words. Lord, I can't carry this anymore. This experience that I've had, this thing that has happened in our life, this problem that we're, we're trying to work our way through, Lord, I can't carry this anymore. I can't deal with this anymore. Lord, I want to unburden myself. I want to unload this. I want to put it down. And I put it down before you. And as a result, I am restored. Cleansed and closured. But not only does the righteousness of God mean that, it also means that we're renewed. We are renewed. Refreshed. Connor prayed for this this morning, that we would be refreshed. Do you know where you're refreshed? You're not refreshed through circumstances. You're not refreshed through going on holiday. That's part of it, but it's not the secret. Do you know where you're refreshed? You're refreshed in the presence of Jesus you're refreshed in the company of God. You're refreshed because in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. And our refreshment is a soul refreshment that requires God to be uh, to be for us to be intimate with God again. And so we are refreshed and we are renewed. Reconciled, restored, Renewed and refreshed. That's what it means when we think about being made to become the righteousness of God. And it's all to do with being in him. Jesus is condemned to death. He hasn't died yet. The actual action hasn't, the transaction hasn't, take place, hasn't taken place yet. But Jesus is going through the the experience of being utterly crushed in order that he might be found worthy that when the transaction does take place, God is able to work something that is nothing short of miraculous. Why not come to him today? Why not surrender afresh to him today? As I invite the band to come back onto the platform, I'm just going to close in prayer for just a moment. Father, we want to thank you for all that Jesus went through. It seems a strange prayer to pray, Lord, that we thank you for all the hurt and the pain that Jesus went through. It doesn't uh, make us feel good when we think about just how Jesus was crushed. And it makes us feel even more funny when we read Paul's words that it was for our sake. That he went through that. But oh Lord on the other side of the resurrection. On this side of the resurrection. Lord. We are thankful. For all. That Jesus has done for us. And we understand Lord. That he is the meaning. To our life. That we can. Be cleansed. Because of what he has done. And we can be reconciled to you that we can bring closure to our past because of what he has done. And we can be restored in our mind, in our peace of mind, restored in our our thinking and in our emotions. We can be restored in your presence because of what he has done. We want to thank you too, Lord, that because of the indwelling, continuing power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we can be refreshed, and renewed daily because of what Jesus has done. And we want to give you our thanks and our praise for all that you have done for us. Help us, Lord. Help us to respond to you. Help us to come to you, relate to you, pray to you, and meet with you in a mighty way.